The following is a sermon that was preached at Faith Lutheran Church in Sharpsburg, Georgia. For more information about our church or to hear past sermons from Faith Lutheran, visit georgiafaith.com. Thank you for listening. What do you suppose they were afraid of? The 11 remaining apostles of our Lord Jesus John, the journalist of sorts who records for us the words and works of Jesus, one of the four who did such a thing, tells us that he and the other apostles were afraid. They were behind locked doors. They were afraid of the Jewish authorities, which probably means they were afraid of facing the same fate as Jesus. Maybe not crucifixion publicly, but maybe violent murder at the hands of the kind of people that you keep on hand to do such dirty deeds discreetly. So they're hiding. They're afraid for their lives. Even in the wake of Christ's death and reported resurrection. Now that means then that there's a bit of a challenge relating to them from our comfortable positions today, because truth be told, You and I, in this time and place, don't really typically face credible threats to life and limb because we are Christians. We don't have the doors locked here today for fear of violent reprisals. And we're thankful to God for such such an experience because that has not been the uniform experience of the Christian church throughout history. So what do we have in common with their fear then? I think there's at least one big one, one that strikes to the heart of our human soul just as it would have struck them. And it's the fear of being wrong. They surely must have felt that, that they had really made a big mistake following Jesus. That they had gotten it all wrong and wasted a lot of time and energy. And now look at them. Now they're in danger because of it. What I want to suggest today, though, is that the fear of being wrong, it's real, but it can lead us to some pretty bad places, dark spiritual corners. And yet this sacred scene from John chapter 20 between Thomas and Jesus helps dispel that fear and point out, put us on the path to the right way of being right. I want to start by just acknowledging that the, the fear of being wrong about our faith is a totally understandable one. In that the Bible calls us to do nothing less than to take our life's stack of chips and bet them all on the truth of what is revealed in God's Word. And you know that to go all in on a bad hand can be a good bluff in a game of poker But it is not a sensible thing to do when our very life and eternity is what's at stake. And make no mistake, that's that's what we're talking about here. At stake is an authentic understanding of who you are, where you come from, where you're going. And more than that, God says there's this infinitely divergent path that awaits all people on the last day. We will be resurrected to face one of two ends, either to be welcomed into joyful eternity together with our Lord, or separated from him in condemnation forever. That's not something you want to get wrong, is it? 
You don't want to make a mistake on something that consequential. I mean, if, if that's too heavy, though, just think about some of the universal human desires we share with everyone, the desire to be reunited with loved ones that we've lost to death, the desire to know that there is genuine peace and comfort and hope even in some of life's darkest, most fearful moments, the desire to think that for all the evil and wickedness in the world that in the end there will be justice and things will be right. Everyone wants these things. And what a tragedy it would be, how pitiable if all of the moments where we've felt a bright light of hope in the middle of darkness were just an illusion. If the thought that someday all the injustices in the world will be made right and it will be good and holy, that that is never going to happen. Or that any time you thought what a joy it will be to see your loved ones lost in the Lord again is nothing but a fantasy. It would be a dreadful thing to be wrong about this, to have it backwards. To be wrong about things in life, it can open us up to embarrassment, maybe some mockery or some shame, but to be wrong about this is totally different. We'd be left in the end before God, just as Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed, with nothing to point to that could make us stand in the end. It would be terrible. So yeah, I'm a little afraid of being wrong about this. Now, I do think, though, because the stakes are so high, it can lead us to, to maybe talk in a certain way or think in a certain way. It can be tempting to turn to what I'm going to call the wrong way of being right, and that is often to turn inward, to kind of look and tell ourselves it must be the quantity or the quality of what's in my heart, my belief, my faith, that's really going to be the thing that proves to me, that I'm right about these things, and I can be confident about these things. This is what many people mean, I think, when they might talk about a leap of faith or faith being blind or, or something like that. The idea is, I'm just going to believe this, and somehow my belief and belief is going to give me the confidence I need. And it can sometimes be taken even further, as if you can do something that's genuinely wrong or genuinely dumb, and you can be redeemed by the sheer audacity that you confidently believed in such a thing in the first place. A belief in belief is what that looks like. Uh, looking inside to find some angle that might give us the confidence, the leverage we need to be sure in our hope and in our standing before God. Which brings us to Thomas. Thomas, this beleaguered, doubting apostle, he's long been the whipping boy of of Christians who will claim that a true faith is one that doesn't need any proof of any kind. That I just believe it and that settles it and that's the end. I believe it and that's proof enough because I look inside and I see it. Indeed, no, no small number of Christians have probably found themselves maybe a little puffed up thinking, you know, I thank God that I am not like this man, Thomas the doubter. I believe even though I have not seen in fact, Jesus seems to indicate that I must be slightly in a better class of people because I have not seen and yet I have believed. And so maybe that's the angle I've got going for me. Now allow me to suggest and briefly explain why that approach to Thomas is probably 
a little askew and certainly has some dark spiritual shadows to it. It's the wrong way to be right. And I can illustrate this. It's an, it's an experience you've, we've probably all had at some point or another. If you've been anywhere on the internet over the last 10 years or so, you, you know what this is like. And you know the feeling, you're at the grocery store, you're waiting to put your things on the conveyor belt and you've got a few moments there. And so you and I do what, what everyone does to spare themselves from the excruciating pain of being alone with their thoughts for about three minutes or so. You gotta pull out the phone and check what's going on, what's happening in the world, what's happening on the socials, and then there it is, your white whale. The, the person, the kind of thing that just gives you this deep kick, this sense of almost thrilling meaning and purpose. It's the internet idiot saying stupid things online. And oh, he's so wrong. Look at it. I mean, you know this guy, right? You've seen him. And you can look there and you just shake your head inside and you think, man, this guy's friends must mock him behind his back. He, people must point and stare when he's walking down the road. Surely his mother curses the womb that bore such a fool. And he has the silliness to say these things where we can all see them. He can't hide. And you know the feeling, right? There's some exasperation maybe, some anger, but deep down it feels really good. Because I feel really right. Because that person is so wrong. And in theological language, the word kind of rhymes. It's the feeling of right as being righteous. So in that moment, we feel righteous. Something our soul wants and craves. Which is why I would say that you all really need, excuse me, y'all really need what the place where I live and serve offers, my home state of California. Your stocks need our almost as big as Germany gross domestic product. Your salads need our endless supply of winter sun-ripened tomatoes. And your souls need our seemingly infinite capacity to produce idiots. But that's not the right way to be right. We probably know it. You see, the moment we find someone else to whom we can compare ourselves and say, there it is, the degree of separation between me and them, their wrongness and my rightness is what makes me righteous, we've already convicted ourselves of God's law, the first and greatest commandment, love, the second, excuse me, love the Lord your God, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Because in that moment, we have not loved our neighbor. We're despising our neighbor in that moment, which leaves us convicted without any excuse, naked and ashamed. And then we start to realize, just as there might be people here who look out west to find idiots to feel better than, I can tell you there are people out west who look out east to find people they think of as less than them, and the whole thing is broken. No one is righteous, not one. There has to be a better way. Which brings us again to Thomas. The key to understanding what went on between Thomas and Jesus is to grasp the way that Jesus 
and the apostles talked about faith and what it means to be right or righteous. And what's going on here is this. The problem with Thomas wasn't necessarily that he wanted proof that Jesus was alive. After all, Jesus offered just as much to everyone. All the named individuals in the Gospels who believed in the resurrection of Jesus for the first time happened to have seen it and touched it themselves, and they were never rebuked for it. It seems what's happening is this, that the problem here is that Thomas had this impatience with the way it initially appeared he would encounter the gospel of Christ's resurrection. Not that he would get a touch as he wanted, but that he would have to hear testimony from someone else. You see, testimony is the kind of communication that carries eyewitness truth, something that actually happened to people who weren't there to see it. And yet the people who weren't there can be as confident that it happened as those who were there and saw it. And we know that everyone agrees with this. Our entire legal system is built on it. If you've ever been on a jury, you know how this works. Twelve people who, by definition, are not allowed to be on the jury if they saw the crime happened, they then hear testimony, and even though they haven't seen it, they have to decide whether it happened or not. And not just as an intellectual exercise to say, yes, it happened, or no, it didn't, but as something with consequences, a judgment comes from this. Twelve people who didn't see something happen can send someone to prison for life or even to death, even though they didn't see it happen. And we have no problem with this. In fact, we're confident that this, more often than not, yields the truth and the consequences that come from that truth. It's the power of testimony. And testimony is how God has intended for you and for me to be just as confident in what you believe took place and happened. He indicated this right off the bat when Jesus rose from the dead, the, the first women who saw him and encountered him, he says what? Go and tell my brothers. Go tell them. Give them testimony. Let them know what has happened, that they may believe as well. And that's what Jesus means when he calls you and me blessed because we believe even though we haven't seen. The point is not for us to say, oh, I'm better than Thomas today. The point is to understand that Jesus is saying to Thomas kind of something like this. Of course, Thomas, you have believed because you have seen. Almost as if he's saying, who wouldn't? But isn't it wonderful and blessed that from this point on, there will be people who can be as confident as you, Thomas, even though they have not seen. Because of the testimony of people like you, Thomas, who will now carry this message on through preaching and teaching and then written in the Holy Scriptures for our learning. In fact, the, the Apostle John, he kind of drives that point home at the end of the gospel we heard today. He wraps up by saying, basically this, look, there was a lot of things Jesus did, and we didn't have room in the scroll to put them all down, but you don't even need them all. These are written, and these are enough, so that you can know these things happen, and from them you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the testimony, John says. Believe it. That's the right way to be right. Faith is a, as a gift of God is what's happening here. 
And to give faith, God uses the same senses that he, he used to make sense for the apostles, the same senses you make sense of every corner of your life. God simply has encountered you through this means that you can know and believe and have confidence. Because no one could have known Jesus was alive again unless they saw him and touched him, Jesus made many appearances to people who could see and touch him. So that now today, when we say Christ is risen and you say he is risen indeed, we actually mean it. It's not because we've ginned up a feeling in our heart that we think, yeah, I think that's a nice thought, or I at least think so. No, we say he's risen indeed because he is risen indeed. It has happened and we are confident of it. We don't have to work something up because we know that long ago Jesus appeared alive to many people and they confirmed it with their own eyes and they touched the truth. The truth with hair and blood and fingernails, but more importantly, truth with crucifixion scars. They saw him because he was there. In fact, because of the testimony that Thomas got his hands on to that, that touchable truth, that we can be confident from that in truths that no one can see or touch. After all, what does it actually look like when sins are forgiven? It happened today. I, I didn't see it, though, did you? What does it sound like when someone has deep and abiding hope, even in the darkest moments? You still hear tears, don't you, and wailing and crying? You don't see that intangible truth there. There's nothing to lay hands on or eyes on in those moments. But because Thomas touched a, a risen Lord, it means that all those unseen truths are validated and vindicated. We can be confident in them as well. His scars are what forgiveness looks like. His body is what the future looks like. His ascension is what his power and glory and authority looks like. His breath is what peace sounds like. And his word is what confidence sounds like. One of my biggest fears has been that I've got it wrong because the stakes are high. I don't want to be wrong for myself, don't want to be wrong for my family. I don't want to spend a lifetime telling other people like you about something only to be shown to be a fraud. But to know that what I trust and what I am called to preach and teach is reliable testimony gives me a confidence far better than just me trying to look inside to my own strength or my own will or my own thinking or my own choosing. It gives me a sense of who I am, where I'm from, and where I'm going. It also gives us an angle and gives me an angle on maybe actually kind of starting to love my neighbor. Because now my neighbors are not people that are less right than me or more backwards than me. They're people who are just like me, who need the testimony of Christ and his gospel as much as anyone, as much as you do, and as much as I do. And suddenly then, there's solidarity. And suddenly then, there's an opportunity for love. In the meantime, do I wish I could see my risen Lord in person? Of, of course. I don't know what believer wouldn't say that. There's times it would be good to have that quick glimpse, wouldn't it? Just once to be like Thomas and say, can I just see and touch? 
And yet that's not what God has called us to be. He's called us to believe in testimony. And in this sense, I guess I could say I'm kind of glad I haven't had that moment yet because it means for all of us that moment is still in the future. That great moment when we'll stand before Jesus and you'll see his eyes bright with eternity's light. You'll see his face warm with blood-bought love. And I think he's going to say something like what he said to Thomas, just in reverse. He'll say, you have believed because you heard the testimony, but now blessed are you because you have seen. Amen.